Welcome, everyone, to episode 81, Organoids and Zika. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? It's the holiday season. Wow, you're singing Christmas songs. <laughs> I am. I have a good voice, don't I? That's Tell right. The truth. That's right. Tell the truth. Well, you know, it is the holiday season, and for our listeners, we have a special gift, and that's a bunch of Zika. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not sending people Zika through the podcast. Well, not no. Zika, like a package of Zika no. trick-or-treat. No, it's like a bunch of stories about Zika, which you may or may not want to hear. But I'm positive on these a little bit. Not as positive as you, Kiki, but I think at least we're doing something. We're making progress. Yeah, definitely making progress. And I got some bad news, but there's some good news in here as well. And I don't know, you know, Southern Hemisphere folk, it's your summertime, even though around these parts, we're going to be hit with a polar vortex this next week. You ready for oh, the no. cold temperatures? Maybe it'll uh, kill some mosquitoes. Yeah. <laughs> Silver lining. Silver maybe. lining. There we go. All right, let's get down to the business of the podcast. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can find all of our past episodes and great resources. You can follow us on social media as well at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right. We do have a great show for you today. Our guest for episode 81 is Dr. Kevin Egan. Dr. Egan and his team have recently published a paper on a new system using organoids to investigate the pathology of and discover novel therapeutics for Zika virus infection. But before we get into that, let's round it up. You ready? I can't wait to hear about it. Tell me some news. Start off with something that, that's that's Zika related, if you don't mind, would you? Oh, oh, well, let me just pull this story out, right? I just got it right here. Thank you. Oh, yeah, this is my bad news. Oh. Colombia in 2016 has seen a surge in babies with microcephaly. More than four times as many as were reported in 2015. 476 documented cases of microcephaly from January 31st to November 12th. This is noted in Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report published by the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The same time period in 2015 was only 110 cases. CDC epidemiologist Peggy Honine Honin says... This provides very compelling evidence that every country that experiences a large Zika outbreak is likely to see devastating outcomes on fetuses and infants. So uh, this uptick follows one reported in Brazil. Brazil in 2015 experienced a ninefold increase in cases compared with the previous 14 years and it's been concluded that Zika virus was a causal factor in this uptick in microcephaly. And as well for this, the suggestion is that Zika virus is to blame in Colombia also. Yikes. So that's fourfold increase in Colombia, ninefold in Brazil. Yeah. Oh, I'll tell you, it's terrible news, but it's news that I've like been waiting for. It's like bad news that you know is coming. So I'm not shocked. I'm bummed. But I'm not shocked. Look, it's a bummer, though. Yeah. 
I think one of the big questions here, you know, is that it, Zika's been around for a long time, just kind of circulating, building a reservoir in the population, going relatively unnoticed as to its effects. What's spurring the epidemic? Why is it just, bam, Zika, I'm going to kill babies. Ah. Blowing up. I guess it's reached the critical mass, critical yeah. threshold. Right. Talk it, to an epidemiologist. Don't look at me. I'm just like, I'm just some guy. Tell me, Dalen, come on. <laughs> Don't look at me for answers. <laughs> interesting study moving away from Zika into some interesting cancer research reporting at the December 5th annual meeting of the American Society for Cell Biology. Jason Scheltzer is cell biologist at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York. He and his colleagues have reported on their work examining the effect of having extra chromosomes in mouse cells that also have cancer-promoting mutations. And so if you have an extra chromosome, normally our cells have two copies of each, but if you have an extra, it's a trisomic cell. And these cells grow slower in lab dishes and they form smaller tumors in mice than cells with cancer mutations, but without the trisomy. And so what they're suggesting from this study is that extra chromosomes might suppress cancer. Is it like an extra one of every chromosome? So it's like 23, 46, 69 chromosomes? No, I don't think it's 69. No, it's like, it's it's like, a, it's one like extra. 47. Yeah, yeah, it's like one extra. So anyway, there is a, there's been a, a longstanding paradox in cell growth and cancer research, cells with extra chromosomes grow slower than cells with the normal two copies, but cancer cells that grow quickly often have additional chromosomes. And so they thought that perhaps extra chromosomes and cancer causing mutations team up, but they don't. So even when they carry these trisomic cells, carry cancer associated genes on the extra chromosome, the cells are still making less than usual of the proteins that drive the cancer growth and the tumor growth. So the extra chromosomes, they're not exactly off the hook because as we see, you know, we, we have this paradox, it's stuff going on. After cells carrying extra chromosomes were grown with a low dose of chemotherapy drugs, then they grew faster than normal cells without extra chromosomes. So there's something interesting going on with this extra chromosome business. I find it very Driving confusing. cell growth. Yeah, it's very confusing. So, you know, this is definitely going to lead to more research, but the authors suggest this might be because cells remaining after chemotherapy have developed additional abnormalities leading to more aggressive cancers. So, yeah, I always thought it was about the genes. Like, you know, elephants never get cancer, even though they're huge because they have like a lot of copies of the tumor suppressor p53 mm-hmm. on multiple places in the genome like that makes sense to me this i would think maybe they were having a gain of function of tumor pr- suppressors but the the authors say that's not the mechanism it's some elusive mechanism with the extra chromosomal load or something i'm very confused but hey maybe a silver lining to trisomy now we can think about that and in fact i know that uh down syndrome patients have better outcomes with uh, cancers mm-hmm. for some reason. Did you know that? I, I think it's because that. they have That's a gainous function. The trisomy yeah. 21, that extra chromosome gives them some extra tumor fighting function. So I, I don't know. There's something going on here. I yeah. can't quite understand. So yeah, there is something unusual happening 
but it's interesting. It is. Very fascinating that somehow an extra chromosome might help to protect you from some cancers, maybe. Maybe it's a specific, you know, exactly which chromosome and what genes are, you know, have additional copies. Interesting, fascinating study that I think I love brain stuff, right? You know, neuroscience is my bread and butter, but oh, Parkinson's disease, a new study reported December 1st in Cell. This study suggests that maybe someday doctors might be able to treat Parkinson's by fixing a bacterial imbalance in your gut. What? Yeah, so this gut-brain connection is really, really real. I mean, we've got, you know, there are serotonergic neurons in your brain, but they're also in your gut. Serotonin is highly involved in digestion and the processes. So, you know, you've got basically a second brain in your abdomen, right? Your whole gut is full of neurons. It's a little, it's a brain. Tells you all sorts of things. <laughs> you think uh, of your brain as being protected in your skull, but you've got two brains. <laughs> the hungry one. <laughs> That's all you keep. <laughs> I know. So there have been lots of studies in humans that have suggested a link between gut microbes and Parkinson's, but it hasn't been really clear whether the microbes in the gut were actually causally connected to the disease. And so now researchers like Caltech who did this study, they say that their study actually is a adds a functional mechanistic role for the microbiome. So they studied mice that produced too much alpha synuclein and this is a protein that's believed to cause Parkinson's when it clumps up in the brain. And the mice that had this extra alpha synuclein, they demonstrated Parkinson's like symptoms and their brains had inflammation. And then when they raised the same mice to not have any gut microbes, so basically sterile mice without germs, the animals had less inflammation. Their brains did not have the same amount of clumpiness and they didn't have, they, they were less sick. They were still producing a lot of the alpha synuclein though. And so it's just not clumping and they didn't get the Parkinson's symptoms. So in another experiment, they took gut microbes from Parkinson's patients and they put them into the germ-free mice and then the mice got motor problems. That seems very, wow, impressive. It's a cell paper. Yeah. But wow. And you know, you have to control also, right? And so they had the same mice who had were producing the extra alpha synuclein and they were given microbes from healthy humans oh. and they stayed the same. So there's something about the microbes from Parkinson's patients that led to the alpha synuclein clumping up and causing those Parkinson's symptoms. And so it's not just the presence or absence of bacteria, but the type of bacteria. So what's in the mix? right? Do you have good, healthy bacteria or do you have bacteria that lead to clumpy proteins in your brain? Yeah. Yeah. So the alpha synuclein, these clumps can move from the gut to the brain and it's possible the bacteria are also sending signals as well. And they found that fecal samples from these mice that had been implanted with the Parkinson's patients bacteria, they had higher the normal levels of certain species of intestinal bacteria. 
So the researchers at Caltech are really interested in trying to figure out if these are pathogenic microbes that are driving the disease state or whether it is, you know, the, not just the type of microbes, but how many of them there are, you know, how diverse is your microbial microbiota? My question, I would try this. I would say, what happens, you take the alpha-synuclein mice, you give them the, the Parkinsonian diet, and then you sterilize their microbiota. Can you, like, Can you take it away? It? Can you rescue yeah, it? Can you rescue it? Because that'd be an interesting thing. You wonder if this is, like, a compound thing when you have the alpha-synuclein or whatever the issue is, the pathology of Parkinson's pre-existing, it's, like, latent, and then the biome synergizes to bring about the actual disease or is it really causal because i think what i'm mm -hmm. a little bit skeptical of is i'm i'm hearing a little bit but maybe this is I'm, I'm hearing wrong that there's like a causal link like maybe the biota causes the parkinson's like you know and i don't i'm not feeling that level of conviction what we've got is correlation at this point. Absolutely correlation. The study, what they've done, they added bacteria from Parkinson's patients and they saw an increase in symptoms. By bacteria from healthy patients, no increase in symptoms. So we've got a correlation here that involves bacteria, but we don't know the pathway. We don't know what the specific species of bacteria are influencing mechanistically to change the clumpiness of this alpha-synuclein. And that's a challenge, I guess. I that mean, that many, is not known. It's got to be millions. The, different, the number yeah. of things floating around your microbiota is beyond quantification, I'm sure. Yeah. And even though it's correlation, I am sure there are going to be people trying out, you know, <laughs> give me a healthy uh, fecal transplant. <laughs> yeah. Well, you wonder. It's maybe a little a complication of a fecal transplant. You might be giving yourself some uh, Parkinsonian feces there. You may want to watch out. And that's a really interesting question. Yeah. There's a lot we don't know. Got to look at that poop. You got to look at that poop, Kiki, before you put it in there. Stare at make it. Sure it <laughs> make sure Stare it's clean. It. <laughs> make sure you got some clean poop. <sighs> I'll oh, give it. Jesus. I'll give it to somebody else with a nice microscope to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Final story. Hey, we love solar alternative energy. Let's get clean energy in our future. Let's make it work. We've heard so much about how expensive developing these technologies is, you know, how solar, the panels have been super expensive. We've got all sorts of issues. You know what? Nature Communications paper reporting December 6th, the manufacturing process for solar panels has gotten greener and greener. And this technology, solar panel technology is going to break even. We're in the black. In terms of energy use by 2017 and by greenhouse gas emissions by 2018. And it may have done so already, according to their calculations. So even though you're producing the solar panels actually drives greenhouse gas production because you've got manufacturing processes involved, right? You're, you are, we are producing greenhouse gases. They reverse the imbalance because they're just they're sitting there creating energy from the sun for, for nothing, for nothing, basically. For yeah. Free. So environmental scientist at Silouen of Utrecht University in the Netherlands wanted to find out how green is it? And this is something we need to look at in all sorts of our processes for the process of making something and then using it. What is its cradle to grave balance? 
What are we doing? So they say that each doubling of the combined energy generating capacity of all solar panels has coincided with a 12 to 13% drop in the energy used during manufacturing and a 17 to 24% drop in their carbon footprint. So I don't know. I personally can't wait to see what's going to happen with Elon Musk's new roof tile solar panels and his, you know, he's putting together his, you know, Tesla and Solar City are merging. I mean, he's got the battery company for energy storage and he's putting solar panels on people's roofs. This is it. We've got energy generation and storage. Just, ah, he's going to rule the world soon. I tell you. Benevolent hegemony of, of Elon Musk, the That's overlord right. of goodness. That's right. And sustainability. Yeah, and um, yesterday some big big news came out. Bill Gates is creating a a venture capital fund that's going to be it's a bunch of investors it's going to be 170 billion dollars to be invested over the next 20 years in clean energy technologies. And that's $170 billion is the number they're starting out with, with just the initial venture capitalists investing. They're, they're expecting that they'll probably bring in more investors and more funding. And I mean, I am so excited to see what comes out of this. Well, you know what the key, what I hear there, that's critical, venture capitalists. This isn't a donation. Uh, no. This isn't philanthropy. These people aren't giving away $180 billion. They're investing, and that means mm-hmm. that they have a strong reason to believe that that investment is going to make a strong return. And yep. all the signs are uh, pointing in that direction. So, yes, equilibrium, equilibrium. We've reached equilibrium in our energy use. Solar panels are green. We're in the black. You know where else equilibrium is important? Balance. Your telomeres, Kiki. You need your telomeres to be the right length. I do. I'm like constantly doing things, chopping them off. I'm like, go away. (laughs) I've seen you trying to blow dry and layer your telomeres, but you can't, Kiki. They're Uh, not something you can style. You're born with them. But they get shorter and shorter. At least that's the idea. You know, telomere length has been linked to age and longevity. There was this big idea. Oh, we'll just restore our telomeres. It'll be like the fountain of youth. That was debunked. But nevertheless, telomere length is an important thing. The caps of the telomeres are the telomeres are the caps of the chromosome at the ends. And that's what keeps degeneration from happening and genetic abnormalities and you know, mutations that can lead to cancer. So telomere length is really important. In a new study, researchers, well, led by Jan Carl Seder at Salk Institute, are showing that telomere length is determined not just by elongation of the telomeres, which is mediated by this telomerase enzyme, but also trimming of telomeres by a couple enzymes called XRCC3 and NBS1 are proteins involved in homologous recombination. Now, let's just talk about why they came to this. The idea was, okay, as your telomeres get shorter and shorter, you get deficits in differentiation of pluripotent stem cells. They lose their pluripotent capacity, and they can also lead to cell death. So one idea was that, okay, if it gets smaller, it's bad. If it gets bigger, longer, the telomeres, if we can enforce elongation of these telomeres, maybe we'll get increased pluripotency or increased viability of these cells. And so that's what they did. But what they found, much to their surprise and delight, 
was that it didn't increase the differentiation potential of these cells. It was a finding contrary to their expectations, which underlies Ooh. all the greatest science. Keith. Yeah, we didn't expect that. Unexpectedly, <laughs> all the best <laughs> discoveries in science begin with unexpectedly. But they found that it didn't work out. In fact, these cells were more fragile and they accumulated more DNA damage. And essentially what they show that the balance is really important. They have to be the right length. And excessive telomere elongation uh, compromises the telomere stability um, and forms these partially singly stranded telomeric DNA circles called C-circles, especially in these pluripotent stem cells. And it kind of raises a bunch of issues. One is that if you enforce elongation of the telomeres by having long-term culture of these embryonic stem cells in their pluripotent state, which is kind of an artificial mm -hmm. situation there, it may lead to an imbalance. And so long-term culture of your pluripotent stem cells may not be good for uh, differentiation of their viability if they're made into cells or tissues. And essentially, it's really important to have tight control of telomere length homeostasis. So it's another diagnostic criterion that we should clearly be looking in, in uh, cells that are ever going to get to the clinic. We want to make sure those telomeres are balanced, Keek. You know what I'm saying? Everything, balance. It's all about balance, right? Everything's yes, about balance. Key. But I'm just, you know, I'm thinking about telomeres and the longevity research, you know, so this is for me staying alive longer. I don't necessarily want those really long dangly telomeres. They're no. gross. Unnecessary. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about really long and dangly makes them sound haggard and really out of Maybe like yeah. a nice medium length, you know, shoulder length. I wonder if there are any examples. I mean, we talk about all the time, you know, the chopping off of the telomeres and like, you know, that, that leads to aging, right? The process yeah. leads towards cellular aging. Do we have examples of people that have long telomeres? Have we mm. found that before? Like naturally. Naturally perfect. unbalanced. We talk a lot about how longer telomeres are yeah. better, but. Yeah, there's that village in, in some, you know, you ever heard of that village where like everyone lives to be 100? I forget <laughs> where it is. Maybe in like the Greek islands or something. But we got to check right. their, their telomeres over there. I, I'm sure they have. Let's be honest. We don't have any. Well, I don't have any original ideas. <laughs> that idea was yours, though. So someone, go do go this. This is that. a good grad student go. project. Go find it. <laughs> Fund, fund yeah. that. All right. So from telomeres and aging on to the heart, you know, the heart's really the key. It's the problem. It's a pump. After about two to four billion beats, it's tuckered out. So what do you expect? It's going to go bad. It's like any machine, probably the most elegant machine, if we're honest. But the heart and heart disease, it's a major killer. Sean Palachuk. University of Wisconsin, he's made some uh, strides in figuring out how we may be able to treat heart disease using embryonic stem cells, human embryonic stem cells. Also understanding the differentiation process, both in vivo, maybe in fetal hearts, but also in adult hearts, maybe after a heart attack. What's going on? What's happening with the cells that leads to them not forming viable tissue, forming this scar with avascular dead tissue leading to poor heart function. Well, Sean Palachik's looking into it. He's trying to make epicardial stem cells. All right. So epicardium, the epicardium, it's a cell group that contributes to multiple lineages. Uh, it also kind of spits out paracrine factors 
in during development of the heart, but also after a heart attack, during cardiac repair, the the epicardium is this kind of outer layer of the, the heart that's shooting out these factors that's informing the healing process in a negative way, really. It's making it this kind of scar tissue, myofibroblast proliferation and, and a matrix formation that's not really conducive to healing. But if we could figure out how to manipulate these cells and make them heal in a different way or understand the factors that they're contributing to the healing process, maybe we could make a better healing heart. So using uh, embryonic stem cells in this knock-in line for a gene that's specific to the epicardium, WT1, Sean Palachuk and his group, they found that temporal modulation of wind, you go up and down with wind signaling at specific times under xeno-free, that's clinical grade conditions, they show they can get these specific class of cells, epicardial progenitor cells, that no one has really been able to derive from embryonic stem cells before. They show that these cells are very similar to primary epicardial cells that are found in vivo. And they also show that they can contribute to the cell types that uh, epicardial cells make in vivo in live assays. They inject them into hearts and show that they can become the smooth muscle and fibroblast tissues that epicardial cells typically are biased towards. Bottom line, these findings have I think pretty broad-ranging implications for understanding the self-renewal mechanism of epicardium, both in normal development and disease, and understanding epicardial regeneration and using this as a kind of platform for screening for drugs or uh, factors that might be important for clinical therapies of heart attack and heart disease. So Sean Palachek, really prolific. Another story about epicardial stem cells. Pretty cool stuff, Keith. Oh, I think it's very cool. I mean, I love the direction that stem cell research is going for cardiac health. I mean, if there's a way that we can get away from doing artificial hearts, pig transplantations, you know, pacemakers, all these things that, you know, these technological solutions to trying to keep the heart going, you know, if we can get away from that and just have, you know, people's cells here, have some new cells. In a perfect world, we'd all just have some cells in the fridge. Yeah. Self-renewal of the epicardium. I like it. God, I'd be psyched to have a heart attack if I had cells in the fridge. Right? What about that? Maybe not psyched. <laughs> no, you don't want a heart attack. Nobody wants to go through that, <laughs> even with cells in the fridge. You know I'm going to take that back on the record. I'm really sorry I said that. The gods of heart attacks, <laughs> don't please spare me. I got kids. All right. So, you know, this is a platform, right? They were going to use for screening is a really great idea. They have a tool now. They can screen says what makes epicardial anathema. There's another cell type that's really hard to figure, endoderm. You know, endoderm is a big deal because mm-hmm. endoderm contributes to all these different organ systems. Endoderm, no one thinks about endoderm, but the lung comes from endoderm, the thymus, the intestine, pancreas, liver. These are a lot of organs that, you know, if we could figure out how to make more of these tissues, understand what goes wrong in disease mechanisms, cancer, it'd be a major, it would affect a huge swath of patients. So endoderm, how do we get to endoderm? Well, we have a lot of protocols. We've got a lot of recipes. People have been working on endoderm forever, but the problem fundamentally is that we're all working with different cell lines, and endoderm in particular is really, I'd say, I wouldn't say vulnerable, but there's a high degree of variability. When you're trying to get endoderm in a cell culture system, you kind of have to optimize every different cell line that you generate. You've got to tweak your protocol a little bit to make sure that you're making endoderm with high efficiency. 
So providing a means to rapidly, cheaply, straightforward, efficiently, practically assess the differentiation potential of a handful of multiple pluripotent stem cell lines would be really important. Remember, if we're going to live in a world where we have like induced patient-specific pluripotent stem cells, we're not going to generate one line and say, all right, let's throw it back into the patient. There's going to be very rigorous qualification and proof and safety of all these criteria in this cell line. And one of those mm -hmm. is going to be, you know, efficiency of differentiation. If we're going to do that across all these different lines, we need to do that with high efficiency. So Gareth Sullivan in Scientific Reports in a recent study, they developed a rapid small molecule-based screen to assess the endodermal potential of pluripotent stem cells based only on morphology. You know, there's all this high-tech gizmos, gadgets. We got a confocal microscope and a reporter and a cell sorter and these live, you know, drug-resistance cassettes. There's a million ways that we can enrich for our cultures. But rarely, you know, not for decades have we said, oh, you want to figure out what that is? Look at it. Look at it in a phase contrast microscope, and, I'll, and that'll tell you what it is. No one trusts their eyes anymore. Well, Gareth Sullivan is going to lead you to trust your eyes. He's developed this robust way and simple way of effectively screening lines just by looking at them under a phase contrast microscope. He's 10 different lines. Four of them are human embryonic stem cell. Six were induced pluripotent stem cell. And the screen, which was really simple, like I said, clearly showed which cells were amenable to endodermal differentiation. And only the ones that qualified by those morphological criteria, only those were able to further differentiate into hepatocyte-like cells, which is the definitive proof that they were endodermal. So essentially, his screening procedure worked. What they said was going to have the potential to form endodermal with robust efficacy, it was in reality, as he said, as the group said. So this is an important means of providing users with key information about the culture conditions for their cells and figuring out the cell lines amongst many that are going to be the most robust endoderm producers. They call this the cell profiler system. Or, well, if you combine the strategy, sorry, with other technologies like the cell profiler system, you could do this in a totally automated way. Take the human totally out of it. And that's like kind of the prerequisite to doing anything clinical is getting us mm -hmm. fallible humans out of the picture. Yeah. And it's kind of like our, our last interview with Jenna Dare, you know, creating this system where it just gets more and more just plug and chug, put your pieces together, create the throughput system and you get the screening and you put something in one end and the results come out the other exactly. end. <laughs> so called, I hate to use this term, but I have to, in this yeah. case, idiot proof, you know, and I think yeah. idiot proof is when you're going, the people who do this work are not idiots. But if this work is ever going to be put into the clinic, let's be frank, it's going to be done on a scale where we have to be comfortable with idiots making it work. So this is one step in that direction. Yeah. Would this be the kind of thing that might eventually get picked up or spun out from the university level into a larger company where, you know, I'm thinking biotech company and a researcher wants something done and this is what, you know, you want to check your cells, you want to look at it, you send your sample and they do it because they've, the company has it all set up. Yeah, I think that's funny. That's exactly what I was thinking when I read the, read the title of this. And then when I looked more deeply in the paper, the thing that kind of belied that notion was the simplicity of it. Yeah. I don't know that there's any IP here. I don't know that there's anything that anyone can control. He just yeah. gave away the bank here, which you got to love 
Gareth for, but I don't think he's he's trying to capitalize in the first place. But yeah. I think the real beauty of studies like this is, yeah, you could get some big company to combine it and to license it with their, you know, take on the tech. But at the end of the day, you or I could go into the, you know, cell culture room on a Sunday and, and put we could together. put this in play on our own. And I think mm -hmm. that's the, the low barrier to entry, I think, is is what's really um, what really gets me about this and studies like this. Yeah. Anybody could do it. Oh, my six-year-old, my seven-year-old could do it. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I love it. Like I said. He's a smart kid, though. I don't I want to. <laughs> Come on, kid. Let's go do some. <laughs> Put him to work. And the last paper, because let's be honest, I always go on and on. There's not much time. I don't even need to delve into this one in great detail because we're going to talk about it with our guests today, Kevin Egan and Michael Wells. But I will read the title for you. It's Genetic Ablation of AXL Does Not Protect Human Neuroprogenitor Cells and Cerebral Organoids from Zika Virus Infection. So this is, I think, the rare case of a negative result that is in a really high-impact journal. And it's really no coincidence. Not only is this a real important issue that's in the news, but it's also the study was done with such elegance and I would say a straightforward, simple approach, which is not to say easy, but simple approach that very clearly and definitively showed that this major candidate receptor for viral entry is not the only way that the virus gets into these cells. And this is really important because if there is another way that the virus is going to get into the cells, it's going to find its way. Some other way, we need to close all those doors. So Figuring out the negative is the first step towards discovering the positive and closing the route of entry for this scourge of the modern era. So I'm just going to say that mouthful, and then we're going to cut to the interview. All right, Kiki, that's my roundup for today. That sounds great to me, and I am really looking forward to talking with Dr. Egan and Dr. Wells and finding out more about what they did. It's going to be a really exciting interview. Yeah, and it was an awesome roundup. So remember that all of the links to these papers that we've discussed will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for our newsletter. All right, so now let's get into the interview segment of the show. This portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies wants you to know about their awesome wall chart, directed differentiation of pluripotent stem cells. We have said it before and we will say it again. This is a well-designed poster with nice colors, everything, all your pluripotent stem cells put into great categories for easy visual search and also for ease of use. And you can explore the wall chart and get a free copy, Stem Cell Podcast listeners, you can get a free copy at www.stemcell.com slash go direct. And this is something that you sign up, you're going to have to give up your name and email address and your mailing address, and they will mail you this poster for free. Stem Cell Technologies would love it if you would hang it on your wall, share it with your whole lab. They want to give you a resource to use. Hey, and this chart came out of Kevin Egan's lap, all ah! right? So it's the least you can do on a day <laughs> like today where we have a special, special guest. And thanks to our guest, download this poster, get one sent to you in the mail, transcribe it, read it out loud to someone who's blind. <laughs> Tell them about the beautiful colors. 
All right. So our guests today are Dr. Kevin Egan and his postdoctoral fellow, Dr. Michael Wells. Dr. Egan is a professor in the Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology at Harvard University. Kevin has made fundamental contributions to the fields of stem cell biology and cellular reprogramming, which in turn led his group to pioneer an entirely new strategy for studying human disease. His lab's experiments exploring stem cells as a renewable source of motor neurons for studying mechanisms leading to neural degeneration were the first stem cell models of disease. He joins us today to discuss his lab's work in his latest publication, Investigating Mechanisms of Infection in Zika Virus, with the paper's first author, Michael Wells. Dr. Wells, welcome to the podcast, and Dr. Egan, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's really great to have you both here. So let's just dive right into this latest paper in cell stem cell. We spoke a little bit, Dalen introduced it a little bit earlier, but Dr. Wells, can you tell us a little bit about just the general basis for what you've done? We started studying the Zika virus back in February. Kevin came to me with an idea about using the virus to study, or using organoids uh, to model the virus. And I had just joined the lab. I had just started looking into project I've been working on, and I was very interested in working on Zika, of course, it's in the news. I have family in El Salvador. In fact, most of my family is in El Salvador, and the virus was just starting to take off in El Salvador. So I saw, I saw this as a way for me to study something interesting and something important. And so that's why when Kevin asked me, we were in, at a meeting in San Francisco, uh, he asked me, and immediately I said, yes. I said, of course, I'm going to do this. This is, this is a great idea. So we kind of went from there, and skipping a few steps, we started getting involved in a collaboration with um, a lab at Novartis. Um, this is uh, Ajamit Kaikis' lab. And um, they started working on making the AXL knockout cell lines that we used in this project, using different CRISPR techniques, an inducible uh, CRISPR technique. And then once we had that, we tried to study the, the hypothesis that AXL was the main attachment factor uh, in uh, neuroprogenitor cells that the virus used in order to enter this specific cell type. And upon doing this, we made uh, MPCs from this cell line as well as cerebral organoids. And long story short, we found that the, the virus was able to get into both the standard wild type lines as well as these uh, AXL mutated lines. So, efficiency and same timing. So, Michael, maybe I could just jump in here. We could take a step back. The, the idea here, if we could figure out what the primary uh, entry point for the virus is into the cell, how can we then get around this, this process and beat the disease? That's a very good question. I, I think it's very important for us to understand how the virus gets in, as you said, in order to uh, plan future treatments. Of course, the best thing you can do to fight Zika virus is to not get Zika virus. That's pretty simple. So if we had a, a vaccine that was 100% effective, then case closed. Then at that point, we're just trying to understand the virus for the sake of understanding the virus. Uh, but until then, and until we have a 100% effective vaccine, which most likely not going to happen, uh, and at best, we should have vaccine that has some efficiency uh, as early as 2018, uh, if all these different clinical trials work out. But until then, I think it's important for us to understand how the virus enters these cells uh, so that if, say, you are a pregnant woman and you've just been infected with the Zika virus, if we could find some way of preventing the virus from entering the, this specific cell type, that should mitigate some of the concerns that you might have about the baby actually developing neurological uh, disabilities such as uh, microcephaly or blindness 
uh, and some of the other things we've already started to see in some of these uh, babies that are born it, from mothers who've been infected with the virus. And Dr. Egan, what was your interest in getting into studying the Zika virus and specifically working with Michael on uh, the organoid way of looking at it? Interestingly, my undergraduate degree at University of Illinois is in microbiology. And so I was trained in bacterial and viral pathogenesis as an undergraduate student before I came to MIT and started working on reprogramming and stem cell biology. And when I was promoted at the university and I knew I'd be staying here for years to come at Harvard, at that time, Steve Hyman was just stepping down as provost of the university and starting to expand activities in this unit at the Broad called the Stanley Center for Psychiatric Research. That group has a broad mandate to study neurodevelopmental disorders and neuropsychiatric disorders. And um, I really began to expand some of the activities in my lab into that space. And here, in the case of Zika virus, we're talking about an emerging pathogen, which threatens to create a whole new class of individuals with these types of disabilities. And so we thought it was an important thing to, um, to begin to think about. Many of us have traveled to places where Zika virus has become endemic now. And um, as someone with two little kids, one can't help but uh, really feel for folks that uh, have children that are now affected with these conditions. So I'd say those were the drivers that really dovetailed with new interests in my lab and related to something that I'd cared about since I was a very young person. And it's clearly an important health problem. Absolutely. So, Michael, you, you alluded to kind of the, the way this may play out in the near future. And I think, Kevin, you clearly have a mind to the landscape that the future may present in terms of the, these patients who are, are affected. How do you see this Zika thing resolving? Or maybe you could lay out some potential scenarios. Are, are we talking about a vaccine where, let's say, five years from now, we're going to look back and say, oh, Zika, remember that thing, flash, and then they solved it? Or is this going to be a permanent part of the landscape where, you know, like malaria? And do you think that this is a chronic risk, essentially? Or do you think we're going to kind of nip this in the bud with all the attention that's been focused on it in the, in the biomedical space? Well, I think we probably each have our own opinions about that. Yeah. I'll, I'll go first. Um, I fear it's going to become a chronic health problem. You know, um, historically, we've done a terrible job with developing effective vaccines for flaviviruses like uh, West Nile virus, the dengue fever virus. So... Although people are working very hard at developing a vaccine that could be used to intervene in, in this space, history doesn't look back kindly on trying to develop vaccines for these types of viruses. I think it may very well end up being something like West Nile virus, which has really become endemic in populations for which there's a, in places like New York and in places like Boston, we see infections every year. I think it's, it's very likely that it may come to that, at least for maybe the next three or four years, maybe five years, there could be some major transformation in vaccine technologies, which could, of course, change all of that in an instance, and maybe this will be a driver in that direction, but I'm not optimistic. Therefore, I think it's really important that we find a way to either block transmission of this virus across the placenta in pregnant women to prevent infection of the fetus under any circumstances, or to try to protect the brain as best we can in the context of these infections in the meantime. Yeah, and I kind of look at it through uh, two different lenses. One, I try to think of it on a, on a macro scale. So we're thinking about what's happening globally. If you take into account that the global temperatures are increasing, we have to accept the fact that these vectors for viruses like Zika, so these mosquitoes, 
are going to be able to live further and further away from where they are currently living. Uh, so right now, we might think of this as a problem that only affects Brazil and Central America and the most southern parts of the United States, but that's not going to be the case for very long. And so I think from that scale, from that point of view, it is something that concerns me and that might make something like Zika virus or these other flaviviruses more of a long-term problem for society. And at the same time, if you think of more of a micro scale, so what I'm doing in lab every day and what other scientists are doing in lab to study the Zika virus, I always approach things as if it's a two-minute warning of a football game and it's the fourth quarter and we're running out of time. And I always take a very pessimistic point of view and I don't try to take anything for granted on doing these experiments when we're doing these studies because I feel like that's the approach we need to take. We need to assume that this is a horrible problem that is very difficult to fix until proven otherwise. And so until we can understand everything about the virus and have a vaccine that's effective, we need to keep treating this as if it's a major problem. Yeah, and potentially the directions that you're able to show that research should go, hopefully that'll at least find stopgap treatments before a vaccine is discovered. Yeah. Working with the organoids, what are the benefits to using using the organoid system as opposed to any other system for studying this virus particularly? So one nice thing about the organoids is you have more of a mixture of cell types in these three-dimensional cultures. Um, I think that's very interesting. It's, it's much more relevant to what's actually happening in developing fetus than, say, a two-dimensional culture of neuroprogenitor cells. And so one thing that we can see when we're doing these experiments is we can see how some of the, say, neurons that are next to these neuroprogenitor cells, how they are affected by the virus. So we haven't directly studied this, but we can see how you have uh, sort of a bystander effect where a neuroprogenitor cell, which is susceptible to Zika virus infection, sitting right next to a neuron, which uh, typically they're not susceptible to Zika infection, we can see how that neuron starts to die off. And you can better understand what's actually happening in developing fetus in terms of uh, how uh, severe cases of microcephaly might pop up from, from uh, a fetal infection. Also, I, I feel, from more of a technical standpoint, sometimes it's difficult to keep neuroprogenitor cells, it's difficult to keep them as neuroprogenitor cells, and I personally have found that looking at these organoids, they seem to maintain their identity a little bit longer. And so it makes it a little bit easier to study a specific cell type when they're in a happier condition. I think of these things as they're just happier when they're surrounded by a diversity of different cell types. So you have more support cells surrounding them. You have, I think of it as a college campus, it's a brochure of a college <laughs> campus. So people from all different places and races and genders and, and religions. I feel like people are happier in that situation, and I feel like neuroprogenitor cells are also happier in a situation like that where they're surrounded by diversity. That's right. Diversity, making us stronger. <laughs> You're <laughs> betraying your liberal bias, my friend. Control yourself. <laughs> I would maybe bring some just sort of, you know, holistic, practical, and technical advantages to that, too. I mean, I think it depends a little bit on what you want and how stable certain culture platforms are. I mean, on one hand, it's difficult at this time to contemplate doing, you know, small molecule therapeutic screening, you know, in organoids at the scales which they can be produced today. You know, the advantage is it's an inclusive model with many of the different cell types that are, which one sees in the brain. And so you maximize your opportunity for the Zika and virus, you know, to basically exert as many of its negative effects as you possibly can. This is important because one of the things that our study does is to replicate findings from Hong Jun Sung's lab from Hopkins, which I think makes a pretty strong argument that 
really the state of neuronal differentiation plays an important role in the susceptibility of cells to Zika virus infection. So we found, for instance, that human pluripotent stem cells like ES or iPS cells were really hard to infect. And likewise, differentiated neuronal cells were also relatively impervious to infection. It was different classes of progenitor cells in the middle that seemed most sensitive to getting burned up by infection with Zika virus. And so from technical perspective, this means that if your NPCs that you're growing as NPCs become a little bit more or less differentiated, then you could misconstrue that for, for instance, an effect of a deletion that you've made. Say that our mutant cells were just a little more differentiated than our control cells, then we might have mistaken that for an effect of the mutation, which would instead it would have been an accidental technical problem yeah. with the experiment. Whereas with the organoids, you have this like this little mini brain, which is cranking out new progenitors all of the time. And that's a very sort of metastable state that goes on for quite a while. And so you have a big window to try to modulate the, the behavior of those NPCs in that assay. So, you know, I mean, I think they both have their strengths. I think, you know, one thing that's nice about the thoroughness of Mike and Max's work from Novartis really was that, you know, they really didn't do this superficially, you know, they knocked it out, they knocked this candidate receptor out a couple of different ways, they made multiple stem cell lines with these deletions, and then they basically, you know, they checked with every known mechanism and method that we had at our disposal, and the answer was the same every time, and that is that we should start looking someplace else for how this virus gets into these neural progenitor cells and affects the developing brain. Right. And that was the bottom line. Huh? At the end of this study, what you came away with was that this candidate receptor, which is maybe drawing a lot of attention as a target, is not alone the means by which this virus gains entry to the cells. So a really important result. And where are you going to take it from here? You said there was another candidate that you found on these neural progenitors. What's the next step here to try and zero in on the way we are going to bang out this virus and beat it to death? Dive, Zika. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of next steps. I mean, I think in the longer term, it probably suggests we need to take the sort of, you know, AXL itself was discovered through a series of unbiased screens. It was just discovered in a series of unbiased screens of, of cancer cells and other types of commonly grown cells that, you know, these sorts of epithelial cells and fibroblastic cells may have a role to play in the life cycle of this virus and aren't unimportant. But at the same time, they're, new, they're clearly not the, the key or sole entry point into the brain, which is sort of the primary health concern that we have with the kids. In the short term, there's a candidate receptor that Michael will say more about that we feel is important to specifically investigate. But in the longer term, I think we need to take the types of unbiased screens, either through chemical pathway screening or through CRISPR-Cas9 screening, as it's been done in other contexts, within NPCs themselves to get a sense of what's necessary. But there is another candidate, and, uh, and Michael and Max are looking into that just as the paper would suggest they are. Maybe you want to say a word about that. Yeah, so we uh, recently started developing cell lines with deletions of the gene uh, Tyro3. So Tyro3 is also a member of the uh, TAM family of tyrosine kinase receptors. So the T in TAM is for Tyro3, the A is for AXL. They're very similar to each other. And this has popped up in a handful of screens, as Kevin mentioned, as being a candidate attachment factor for the virus. Uh, these are screens done in 8549 cells, which are a lung cell, and um, I believe a work done in hex cells also identified Tyro3 as being uh, potentially important for the potentially important mechanism for 
viral entry into uh, different cell types. And so really we're trying to replicate some of the exact same experiments we detailed in the cell stem cell paper, just with a new knockout line. And we're also trying to take into account that AXL might still be a very important attachment factor, just not something that is not the uh, only player in this game. And so we're also making, and in the process, we've already made, I should say, and in the process of validating AXL Tyro 3 double knockouts. And so the idea is to run the same screens as I mentioned before. We're going to do infectivity assays, cell death assays, both in two-dimensional neuroprecursor cells, as well as the uh, cerebral organoids. So I'll uh, look for that paper next week. Right. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of things can happen. It's... Uh, it's relatively high throughput. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's relatively high throughput, especially when we work with uh, the great people at Novartis, where time is, is definitely money. But a lot of things can still happen. I'm trying not to take anything for granted, like I said before. A lot of, a lot of things could still derail uh, our project. Yeah, I mean, you know, Michael and Max have got to stay optimistic about it because they're kind of in the midst of it. And, you know, I mean, regardless of the outcome of these experiments, you know, hopefully if they're completed with the, with a quality similar to that of the work on AXL, then we'll get a definitive answer to this question. I actually think that maybe there's been some confusion about just what early experiments around these receptors meant in other contexts before. And I think that some of my thoughts on that are informed by work in, in animal models as well. So, Rather contemporaneously with our paper, another group investigated what happens if you knock out AXL in mice and try to infect them with Zika virus. And they came up with a very similar answer to ours, which is that it certainly doesn't help to knock out AXL in mice. And if anything, it makes it a little bit worse, which is really what we found too. And I think what it suggests is that, in fact, maybe these tyrosine kinase receptors may be important mediators of an innate immune response to these types of viruses. And that early experiments, which were mostly done through antibody blocking experiments rather than genetic approaches, may have been activating these receptors and leading to a downstream sort of pro-survival response rather than blocking the ability of viruses to interact with these receptors and get into cells. And so it could be that it's true that these are still important players in the disease. We don't want to give the wrong impression about that. They're just not how the virus gets in. In fact, activating these things might be useful based on your data and work in mice. Are you going to move ahead with those experiments, trying to activate them as opposed to blocking? We've looked into that a little bit. And what I would say is that the reagents that have been used for those experiments in the past, in our view, don't meet some of the key criteria that you would like them to meet to be able to satisfy a stringent answer to that question. Very political. So I think one would need to go out and create new reagents to do that or identify new reagents to do that. And we're sort of questioning whether or not it's worth it because the magnitude of the effect is still kind of modest and it's not completely protected by any means in these experiments. So I have to think more about how we would actually do that. I think in general, activating innate you know, immune pathways, cellular pathways as a strategy could be an interesting one. Don't know what kind of effects that would have on neurodevelopment more broadly. That in and of itself could have negative effects. So it's kind of a lot to chew on in, in that regard. I think that's one reason why people like to just sort of go after the, let's just keep the ball on that side of the 50-yard line and the football analogies. And then if, you know, if it's not on our end of the field and the virus isn't really getting in, then, you know, it's not going to score. 
And um, you don't have to think as much about the intricacies of trying to modulate what happens once the virus is inside. So let me ask you something, you know, I know it may be outside the scope of your model, may not be a question you can answer very easily in your lab, but you've got two young kids and I have two young kids. Kiki's got a young kid. Got one. Michael's got his cells that he treats like his little babies. (laughs) And they're certainly prone to infection with Zika too. I wonder sometimes, you know, everyone's focused on this neurodevelopmental, but do you think there's a chance for like, postnatal Zika infection or consequences of that are looming? Like there's going to be some study down the line that shows that young or adolescent brains may be adversely affected by Zika. What's your like gut feeling on that as a scientist or two scientists that have been close to the work? I mean, I'll tell you what my answer to that question is. We're going on vacation in Scandinavia for the foreseeable future. (laughs) Full stop. I'm concerned about it enough personally that you know, I don't plan on taking my little kids or to go alone with my wife to places where becoming infected could become probable. And the reason that is, is that if you look at some of the more recent studies of the children of infected mothers, we're beginning to see in these neuroimaging studies lots of problems in kids that looked normal when they were born. Yeah. Ossification in the brain, problems with development of certain brain regions, So if you first look at moms, right, and you say, let's check out their kids, the first thing you see are the things that slap you in the face and make you pay attention just obviously. But I think it's pretty clear that some kids that maybe we thought were in the clear are definitely not in the clear. And if Hong Jun-sun's data and our replication hold up, then you'd really think that anyone who has a growing brain with a lot of NPCs in them should maybe be worried. Yes. There are lots of complicated things that we don't know about right now. I mean, well, we certainly know that the virus in certain circumstances can get into the adult brain and complicate the neuroinflammatory response there. So I don't think there's any reason to think that it couldn't get into the brain of a young person and maybe do quite a bit of damage there. Maybe it'll be a more rare event. We don't know. But it's certainly a credible enough threat based on the intersection between emerging clinical studies and our basic research that I'm going to make different choices for a while. I'll catch you in the Alps, I guess. Huh? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, to, to build upon that, like Kevin said, you have neuroprogenitor cells in your brain after you're born. Even as adults, we have some. And they have been tied to certain behaviors and certain psychiatric diseases, such as uh, depression. I know uh, bipolar disorder has been linked to adult neuroprogenitor uh, cells. So the way I kind of view this, and this is from someone, I did my grad work studying psychiatric diseases uh, using mouse models. One of the things that interested me about this project was potentially studying what happens downstream. So maybe we don't see a two or three-year-old who gets infected with Zika. Maybe we don't see them developing microcephaly over time or seeing large portions of their brains disappear from cell death. But maybe it's a little more subtle. Maybe it appears as a learning deficit. Maybe it appears as, you know, vision impairment that takes a long time to develop. Uh, or maybe it doesn't pop up until they're adults and they're more prone to things like schizophrenia or for uh, depression or bipolar disorder, like I mentioned before. So uh, I think that's something that we cannot answer right now, but it's definitely something that is a field we need to keep an eye on. Uh, we need to monitor these children who are exposed to the virus both in the womb and uh, early, early in their lives, because we just don't know what could happen in the long run as a result of an infection. 
Yeah. And a lot of these progenitor cells, especially as adults being found in the hippocampal ventricular zone, the question is, you know, is that going to affect adult memory formation? Or is it going to influence maybe memory degeneration and lead to things like you said, like maybe Alzheimer's? There's so many questions. You know what, though? I wonder about this. There's no new tricks in nature, right? How come <laughs> we've never seen something like this? How, or have we? Has there ever been? And, and if, if not, what does this mean? Is it the expansion of the habitat for these disease vectors, as you were alluding to, Michael? Are we just coming into an era where there's these new, like, you know, designer viruses that are doing these spectacularly horrid things to the the people we, you know, are, are, are the most vulnerable. It's really scary. What do you think? Can you tell me, is there a history for this type of disease? So I can give a, a brief history of, of Zika. It was first identified in 1947 in Uganda from a sentinel monkey. I think the first human infected with Zika was in the 60s. So it's entirely possible this has been around for a very, very, very long time. And we just either didn't notice it or it was affecting populations that don't have the best uh, medical systems or the best health care. And so when they're having babies born with microcephaly, that was just, well, you live in a bad area. There's a lot of different things that could cause that. It was never necessarily attributed to something like uh, Zika or any other virus for that matter. But more in terms of the uniqueness of Zika, I mean, you have other viruses that can infect the brain, but... You know, I'm not an virologist, but I can't really think of many others that infect the brain in this way, in the sense that it targets the progenitor cells. So West Nile can infect the brain, but it can actually get to neurons. And so, you know, as adults, we're obviously more afraid of having something like a West Nile virus infection because it can actually cause some serious damage to your brain. But I don't know of any other virus that specifically targets this, this cell type within the brain, and as a result, only tends to affect uh, developing fetuses and, and very young children, if it is actually affecting young children. Yeah, I mean, not a virus, but Toxoplasma gondii does get into the brain and form cysts in the brains. It can blind babies, cause all sorts of issues for if an infection occurs in a pregnant woman, very similarly, but maybe doesn't lead to, you know, the terrible deficits that we see with microcephaly and Zika. So, I mean, there is precedent for stuff getting into the brain and and kind of moving in this causing disorders that we have to deal with. But I mean, I think with Dalen's question, we're just like dealing with something that we're focusing on. Should we be focusing solely on Zika or should we be looking at its related virus cousins like dengue and others that have very similar potential mechanisms of infection? Well, I think that, you know, maybe even for for babies or kids, cytomegalovirus is something that's really an unappreciated yeah. concern. And you know, that's, that's a virus that seems to have grave developmental effects, you know, fetally and neonatally. That's certainly still an unmet uh, medical health concern. I think the, the, the thing to differentiate here between is, you know, social interactions between children's and the contagious effects that that involves versus a particular type of tropism for cells that only exist very early in development. So, you know, it's tough being a kid. You don't have a fully developed immune system. You know, you're tossed into close proximity with a bunch of other kids, either in healthcare or in classrooms. And fortunately, none of us remember how terrifying the polio outbreaks in the early 20th century were. And they absolutely devastated, you know, the motor systems of countless people, often fatally. 
um, sometimes not fatally, resulting in weakness, paralysis, or disability. And of course, in some cases, there was the ability for, you know, natural form of regeneration to occur, which was sort of neuronal sprouting. And some people were pretty okay until they were elderly and then developed post-polio syndrome upon um, neural degeneration. There may be some of that, you know, going on commonly in these other kinds of conditions. You get infected, your sort of nervous system can afford to lose a few cells without a dramatic downtick in functionality. But here with these diseases of really infectious agents of cells specifically found in the fetus, we're seeing these devastating effects. And I think that is kind of a help people's attention to viral infections of, of this stage of development. Piggyback on that, we as a society and how we make decisions in funding need to stop funding viral infection research after the outbreak has already started. We're making the same mistake with Zika. I feel like we think that because it's not affecting us, it's only affecting poor people in, in El Salvador, it's okay to ignore these things. And like I said, you can ignore it for only so long before it does become our problem in the sense that we have Americans who are being infected with these things. And you know, there's five babies born in New York City last week that showed signs of microcephaly. They were, they were not infected in New York City, they were infected elsewhere, but gave birth in New York City. So this is our problem. It's the world's problem, and we need to start treating it as such in terms of how we make decisions with our funding and how we decide to dole out research funds. I would just say the other thing that's devastating about this type of virus is that the parents may not even know they're sick. The thing that's going to make it really tough to chase this out of populations is just simply going to be the vast majority of adults just don't ever know that they're infected. And it's not until you, you know, get pregnant and have a kid and see that there's a problem that you may even realize. And as long as most people present asymptomatically or just like they have a cold, it's going to be tough to exhaust this virus out of, out of the human reservoir. So I, I, that's what I'm really concerned about. Well, yeah, a couple really strong points. Hard to think of it as a silver lining, but maybe this visibility of this virus is the, the silver lining being that it'll finally get the attention it needs and the funding, and we can actually root it out. But, you know, I got to be honest, I'm terrified, and it doesn't seem like the news coming out is, uh, well, I should qualify that. There have been some vaccine strategies. You guys are doing good work figuring out where we should focus our efforts. I'm naturally a pessimist. You need to talk to Kiki about this one. She's going to tell you the bright side. <laughs> she could tell you how we're going to be fine. I'm going to tell you how we're all going to die. That's right. Just a spoonful of sugar. There we go. <laughs> well, guys, great work. Thank you so much for your time and for talking with us about your work today. It's been illuminating. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye, guys. All right. That was a really great interview. I love talking to Kevin. He's so articulate. Michael Wells, too. You know, thanks for coming in on that interview. That was a really fun conversation. And I think they're talking about really important stuff. So it, it was good on all fronts. Kiki, what do you think? Oh, I thought it was just fabulous. I mean, first off, I love the approach. I think using organoids, you know, as this multiple cell type model for studying something like Zika, I think I, I think the approach is fantastic. And the direction that they're coming from, working in this neurodegenerative models of psychiatric disease, looking at the questions of the brain and what's going to be happening with Zika as brains develop. I think it's all really just 
I think they're doing great work. Yeah, it's scary that last part about I know. You know, not just the fetal brain. I've been feeling this, and my wife has been panicking about it. I shouldn't have even asked the question because now she's gonna, she's gonna bite into that. Don't listen to the stuff. podcast this week. No, <laughs> too late. <laughs> oh well, it's a piece of the puzzle, and this is all. This, we need to ask the hard questions and try and answer them. That's true, and I think he he wasn't totally. It's like. Well, he did say he's never going to the tropics again until his yeah. kids are in college. <laughs> what are you doing for summer? Going to Alaska? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's plenty to be uh, worried about. There's plenty to be optimistic about. And, you know, there's always plenty to be pissed off about. Isn't that right, Kiki? That's right. And it is time for us to close the show with our SCP rant. It's our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. Dalen, what are we ranting about today? I got three letters for you. O-I-C. Nobody knows about O-I-C unless you're, you know, I, I hope you don't know about O-I-C. But I learned about O-I-C watching the football game yesterday. The commercial comes on, the classic pharma commercial. Everybody's happy. It's kind of like a pseudo-bizarre universe that everybody's in. And a guy comes out of the bathroom looking like he just, you know, won the lottery. He's putting his belt together. It looks like a big shot. And there's another guy at the counter looking at this guy like he's the most, you know, so envious and jealous of whatever the business that guy took care of in the bathroom. You know why? Because that guy has OIC. Opioid-induced constipation, okay? I'm just thinking to myself, everybody poops except people with OIC. You know, and I'm not, I have no problem with OIC. Let me first be a little sensitive to the people out there with OIC. I'm sorry. It sucks. I get it. And there's some people with chronic pain that are taking opioids and are still suffering. And I, I don't feel that pain. I can't say that I really understand it. But I acknowledge that I know nothing about it. And all respect to those people. But let's be honest. This OIC being a commercial is a blatant money grab from the same pharmaceutical companies that are leading to the overprescription of opioids. And abusive opioids are now trying to piggyback on that by cashing in on the sequel of opioid addiction, namely constipation. Is that sickening or what? I'm at a loss for words, to be honest. Like you said, normalize in such a way like the classical pharmaceutical ad where it's like puppies and rainbows and happiness, you know, when that is not the situation, yeah. people are really hurting. And then there are people who have become addicted. And this is there is a real addiction epidemic that's ongoing in the United States right now. It's a real problem. No, I don't like it. I'm not happy with yeah, it either. It's not a commercial. They're <laughs> not at a diner. They're not having fun. They're not looking at the guy in the bathroom with envy. You know what? They're they're feeling chronic pain either from the pain or from their addiction. Mm -hmm. They're maybe strung out. I mean, this is not the picture of OIC in America. Okay, Kiki? And and somebody capitalizing on this is really it's pissing me right off. And I'm going to stop right there before I go too far. Because you're not down with o OIC. <laughs> I ain't down with OIC. Are you down with OIC? <laughs> yeah, you know me. No way. <laughs> I'm not. I'm you should have been a rapper. should have been a rapper. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea, Dalen. I see a glimmer. <laughs> All right, everybody. 
This is going to end our show. Please be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. This does conclude episode 81 of the Stem Cell Podcast. What a good show. Oh, my goodness. The interview was great. Two great scientists doing really, really wonderful work and such great stories this week. Be sure to tune in for our next episode when we'll be doing the same thing. But you know who we're interviewing next? Oh, no. Drum roll. I get to interview you, Dalen. I don't know what we're going to talk about. I know. We're going to talk about you. I'm so excited to find out about your work, what you're doing. I mean, this is going to be interesting. Let's dig deep into what you do. If this yeah. were a video podcast, you would all see me flushing. Right you now. are. You are flushing a little. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right. Well, we're going to have to do it. We'll have to do it. You know why? Because no one else wants to do the interview on the holidays. I'll be frank with you, you guys. No, I'm that's not it. I'm no, going to step I'm... in there. Okay, I'm good for you. I'm taking a wish. I'm, I'm che- making a list. I'm checking it twice. <laughs> This is, not, this is not because nobody wanted to step up. It's because it's the holidays and scheduling's hard. Is that so? I thought you guys were just being nice to me. No. No, we are excited. We haven't interviewed you. I have not interviewed you. So this is It was a close thing. I almost didn't accept the request. But, you know, I, have to, I happen to have an opening in my schedule. So Aww. I'll make time for you guys. I'm glad. Good, 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 good. I am really looking forward to next time. I guess I am too, a little, a little scared. <laughs>